Christopher, what about making the documentary Tiny uh, helped you become a better filmmaker? What did you learn from that experience? Wow, so much. Uh, Tiny was definitely, for me, a boot camp, and really in filmmaking, but also particularly making documentaries. Uh, from everything from the actual process of you know, shooting and editing and you know, doing sound and those things, but also from the business uh, side of things in terms of raising money and distribution and the film festival circuit and, and learning about festival strategy all the way through um, running your own business. So, I mean, I learned so many things. It's, uh, you know, I can't even, <laughs> we don't have enough time to go over it really. Well, you had said earlier off camera that the design community is, is a very enthusiastic Mm -hmm. community and then it's a large group I think um, did you think that they would take to the film as they did I mean it's one of our most watched videos from when we interviewed you so did you think that they would just be so taken by it when we first you know set out to do tiny Marette and I you know we, we didn't really know what to expect and it certainly exceeded any sort of expectation that we had for the project initially um, but we along the way saw how people were reacting to it you know, so when we, f the first time it kind of went public as a project was when we did Kickstarter and seeing how that took off um, and, you know, how before we even finished the movie, we had something like 700, 800 Facebook followers for it. And, um, you know, we, we could tell that there was something there and the interest in the media all along and just the way that things would get, you know, would be shared or go viral or things like that. And, you know, it, it got to the point where uh, we would talk to a new reporter or whoever and we'd say, you know, just so you know, you're a lot of people are, are going to read your article or whatever. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, of course, everybody always says that. <laughs> sure. And then we get an email like a week to the day later. And like, this was like the most read article that we'd ever had. And I'm like, <laughs> I told you, you know, um, I'd like to pretend that that was because Marette and I were very uh, charming and they really cared about our story. But in reality, I think that we just really timed it well. And that uh, the tiny house phenomenon, it was... Um, Basically, as if, you know, there was just a whole bunch of dried hay and somebody lit a match and, and uh, we just happened to really time it perfectly. And uh, that and the interest in that kind of design in particular in simple living was at just the, the right place. Um, but I, I, I have since learned, you know, through that process that, you know, having communities that are interested in the topic of your film as a documentary filmmaker, um, is really helpful, you know, and, and particularly because communities are, uh, you know, it's, it's basically, um, what do they call it? like a lateral community where it's, it's a bunch of people who choose to like, you know, associate because of something that they share, like a, like an interest rather than like a geographic location. And those communities can really like propel, propel your projects forward. Right. And I know Jay Schaefer had been around for a long time with Tumbleweed. Mm -hmm. I think that's his Yeah, name. although he, he now has his own company called Four Lights Tiny House Company. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so then from what you learned in terms of looking back, what would you not repeat in terms of maybe of a planning perspective, um, technical, um, even getting it into film festivals? What were some things that you planned to do differently with? I know you have many projects you want to be involved in. So what did it teach you in that sense? I, I think... You know, honestly, uh, this not to sound, you know, I guess slightly arrogant or whatever, but but we actually didn't really make that many mistakes, which we very easily could have. But we were very, um, we had a lot of good mentors who kind of steered us in the right direction. Um, I, I would say that if there, I think some of the bigger mistakes though were were. And I wouldn't know. I don't know if this is necessarily a mistake, but we set out to make a short film. And so when we decided to make a longer film, there were some things that we didn't film in the beginning that I would have with going into it with that knowledge. And uh, so when we tried to make a feature like a like a longer feature, you know, 80 minutes long or whatever, we realized that the material we had couldn't really make a compelling narrative of that length. And so we ended up scaling it back to 62 minutes, which ended up being the right the right fit for the movie. And it worked great. However, uh, in terms of distribution, no one uh, is going to distribute a film less than 74-ish minutes. So it really automatically ruled out any sort of all rights deals that we might have had with um, some of the you know, bigger doc distributors who initially were interested but ultimately didn't do it because they couldn't do a theatrical release. 
Well, that leads me to my next and also last question about Tiny, and just that is that um, did you receive millions of views on like Netflix and Hulu and iTunes, and how were you able to verify that? Right. So uh, you can't. They won't tell you. In, in terms of uh, SVOD subscription video on demand, they won't tell you how many views you have. But we, I can say that I've sort of pieced together that it, there. Are, I would guess if I were estimating anywhere from five to maybe as much as 30 million views on Netflix alone. And the way that it came to that assessment, and that's, a, I mean, still a wide range, so obviously I don't know that much, but uh, back before Netflix changed their layout, they used to have the star ratings, and underneath the star ratings, it would tell you how many people gave it a star rating. And uh, I think when ours went, before they, right when they remodeled, the last time I had looked, it was like 500 and, 60,000 star ratings, which, you know, is uh, for documentaries actually is like really high. Um, most were having around 50,000. And if you can assume, and I mean, I don't really know what the real number is, but I, I imagine only maybe one out of 10 people actually take the trouble to like right. rate a movie. I mean, so 10 times that would be 5 million, but it could be as high as 20. You know, you, we, we don't really know. Um, since then, I had a meeting at Netflix and I, I tried to ask him, I was like, do you know how many uh, views we? And of course, you know the person I was talking with was like, was like, yeah, I can't tell you that, but I can tell you that uh, it had a lot more than my friend's movie and hers, and she had a lot or something. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so that's as close as I'm going to get to an answer. But it 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 was a lot. And um, I mean, even like one time we actually found a pirated copy of Tiny on on YouTube, and it had something like seventy thousand views. And oh, wow. I was like, well, if the pirated YouTube version has seventy thousand, then uh, we can assume <laughs> that the non-pirated version, you know, had more. So uh, I think it's still on Hulu. And um, I, I had a friend who worked at Hulu who also said that it was doing pretty well, but I don't know. And it didn't come out on Hulu until like two years or maybe like a year and a half after it was on Netflix. So I don't really know what the numbers are, but I assume that all, if you included all of the views everywhere, it would probably be in the tens of millions. Currency is your new project. It's a Kickstarter campaign that has, I think at this point, six days left. What is it about and how did you find out about the subject matter? Um, well, I think, I think Christopher, you can start. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, Currency is a environmental thriller and it takes place in Cambodia and it really explores the illegal fishing trade and also the corruption that kind of enables it to keep going. As most people are familiar with, Cambodia had a really horrible genocide, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And uh, in our movie, we didn't want to really touch on that much, but it really does sort of set the climate for, for what's going on there. Um, ever since that happened, you know, there, um, the genocide, you know, wiped out a whole culture of academia and uh, almost a whole generation of people. So now what you see is the, the people who kind of came into power and filled that vacuum, the power vacuum, have been running the country for a long time. And the country has become uh, really corrupt and kind of run on this informal economy. And it's also going undergoing rapid development now because the development had been so depressed for so long. And those two things together have created this environment where lots of resource exploitation has been happening and the proceeds of that have not gone to the country but to individual members of the government and um, you know, sort of rich people in, in the community who have relationships with the government. So <clears throat> in how that played out in the oceans is that there are, uh, Cambodia is traditionally an agricultural economy and um, on the coastline that means fishing and a lot of subsistence and small scale fishing. But over the last 10 years or so, there's been an increase in um, trawling activity. And I, I can go over what trawling is in a minute. <clears throat> and also a lot of bigger boats coming in from neighboring countries like Thailand and, and Vietnam have started competing with the local fishermen on a more industrial scale, which you know then in turn forces some of the local fishermen to increase their uh, ways of, of fishing, oftentimes through really destructive fishing techniques that are outlawed in most other countries and even are outlawed in Cambodia, those laws just aren't enforced. Um, so it's become this sort of arms race of destructive and illegal fishing practices in this part of the ocean. And uh, in order to get away with it, they basically pay off those corrupt local officials who pocket the money and then choose not to enforce the laws. 
Um, that is the background of the, the issue. But what our film follows in particular is an investigative journalist who has been writing about these issues for the last three or four years in Cambodia, um, or actually four or five years at this point. And then another, uh, our other main character is a conservationist who's trying to create a marine fisheries protected area. And in that process, patrols it and kind of confronts a lot of these fishermen, and which often turns into serious uh, confrontations and conflicts. And uh, sometimes, they're, sometimes they're violent, sometimes they're dangerous for you know, him and his crew. Uh, and they cause a lot of, uh, I guess, turmoil for his project. Would you say it? Yeah. yeah. So um, th those are the two main characters, but we also follow some some local people. Um, there are two, <clears throat> actually four young Cambodian university students who are actually, as far as we're aware, some of the first in their country, particularly in their age, that are actively pursuing careers in marine conservation. And we follow uh, the two female uh, students in their group. Uh, and they were staying with Paul on the island to do their thesis project and they're doing it on creating a small artificial reef and monitoring that, which what they'll learn there, um, Paul and his crew are scaling up now that they've been approved for their larger marine fisheries protected area. They're gonna use that same um, process to demarcate the boundary of the area and kind of put in these um, snags for the trawling nets. Uh, but they also create habitat for, for local wildlife. And which one of you came on first? Stephanie, did you hear about the project first or was it Christopher? Well, I've been working in Cambodia for probably, gosh, the past three or four years. I started interning out there. Um, I had an internship in human rights and um, I was working at an NGO that was monitoring the Khmer Rouge tribunals. And I kept going back there to work on another documentary of mine. And I became friends with Christopher a couple years later and Christopher learned about this guy, um, this vigilante environmental activist, Paul Ferber, who was fighting illegal fishing in the Gulf of Thailand in Cambodia. And he told me about it and we just decided that we both had to make a documentary about this work and everything that was happening there. Yeah, I, I think it was a natural pairing because you know Stephanie has got a lot of great producing skills, which. Um, I, I lack organizational skills tremendously. <laughs> um, but also, yeah, she I'd never been to Asia at all, and, and she spent a lot of time over there. So as soon as I heard about it, I'm like, the, I, know the, I know now know the perfect person to approach about working on this together. So uh, it, she, she's been indispensable. I honestly like don't know if I could have or would have done it without her. So Well, yeah, and the film wouldn't be what it is without Christopher. It's been his um, filmmaking has been absolutely superb and very impressive it's, you know, in the, over the past year that we've been working on this. It's, you know, it's a lot of run and gun out there and Cambodia is difficult to shoot in. Um, there's, you know, it's usually 90% humidity and at wow. least hundred degrees and, uh, <laughs> especially on the Island that Paul lives on. And, um, but things have really evolved naturally, um, from us working together to working with Paul and, you know, meeting and Matt and having him be part of our story too and all of the other uh, Cambodian characters that we've been working with. It's, it's been a really natural evolution. Right. Yeah, the Kickstarter video is phenomenal. So we'll, we'll put a link underneath this video for people to look at. Um, so was Paul, sorry, the first person that you contacted or how did that transpire? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you reached out to Paul. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I guess um, when I heard about Paul, I, I found his, I went to the, he has an organization that he started called Marine Conservation Cambodia. And I went to their website and sent an email, I think to the general information email. And we actually heard back from this woman, Charlie, who is a photographer and was, you know, basically found out about Paul and kind of just was volunteering her time to help coordinate because on their small island, they don't actually, um, well, at least at the time, didn't have good or any really cell phone or internet access. So Charlie would respond to their communications and then she eventually set up a call with, that we had with Paul um, late one night. Yeah. And <laughs> it's like a 15 hour time difference, I think. <laughs> yeah. And they were, um, you know, I, I think that we got them at the right time. Uh, they were having, 
trying to figure out how to do some fundraising. And I think that they thought that, you know, having some more exposure in the media would help them with that. So we, Stephanie actually had already planned a trip out there three weeks from that conversation. And that was right around the same time that I was thinking would be good to go. And so we ended up, um, I ended up buying a ticket because she already had one. And then we went together and we worked um, for about 10 days on this project and then maybe three or four on some other projects that Stephanie had. So, yeah. I'm just curious, what, what type of an email are you sending to someone? Because you know that this is like, this could make or break whether they respond to you. Is this a long email, short email? How, how are you wording it? Yeah, so access is a real, in documentaries, access is probably 25% of what makes a successful project, maybe even as high as 30 or 40. You know? Luckily, after doing Tiny, I think that being able to say that I had a film on Netflix, and it's funny that Netflix is the like, yeah. The catchword these days, but yeah, saying that I had a film on Netflix um, has opened up a lot of doors in that regard, and people take you more seriously. Uh, so that's uh, like really fortunate that that I can do that. So so basically, my email would look like a little bit about my background, um, you know, how we found out about them, and then and just like let's talk more. Not really, you know, because we also don't really know when we reach out to people what we want to do necessarily with them because you you kind of hear what might be a good story but you don't really know until you kind of get there and you see what's going on in fact when we started this we also thought it was going to be a short film Mm -hmm. and then once we got there we met matt who became our primary character really and we realized that the context of everything going on there um enhanced paul's story but like uh, there were other stories and it was all part of a larger story of what's happening in the region. And then that's when we thought we could make a feature. So we, we you know, we, we just, uh, you got to keep things fluid and open in the early days. And so we, you know, we kind of just have a very broad idea when we contact people that we want to do something we think, but we're not sure what. Yeah. And I think something important too, when reaching out um, to possible characters in a documentary if you're not sure, uh, is just making sure that they feel um, safe in the email and making sure that you've like researched, like it's really important to give the impression that you've researched them and that you know what you're talking about, you know, because just telling them that, you know, you want to reach out to them or that you want to talk to them about a film usually isn't enough, especially, you know, if people have been kind of burned by media or, um, you know, haven't always been portrayed in the best light or are unsure of what um, kind of context something is going to be shown in. So it's really important to make the people feel safe so that they can at least have a, a, an initial conversation with you. And not to correct you, but I would mm-hmm. say that even rather than making feel like you've done the research, it's actually, you know, doing the research. Doing the research. Which is what I think no. about, but Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to do the research. You have to... Yeah. You have to know what you're talking about in the email, you know, as brief it is, as it is in the beginning. And you have to, um, you know, just just show your stuff a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that um, this is probably a larger question, but like, you know, actually approaching with good intentions, mm-hmm. um, people can, can, can tell that, you know, from your first phone call. And I think uh, it's important to do, particularly documentaries, I think it's particularly to do for the right reasons and uh, and being honest and straightforward and transparent and you know that all that bleeds into your whole relationship with your subject which is like i mean honestly we could have a whole conversation about that and how tricky it can be to um to maintain a good working relationship i mean not even working relationship just a relationship with with the subjects of your film because uh it's fraught with all sorts of potential you know pitfalls and things like that Mm In the Kickstarter video, Christopher, you talked about how you'd like to make Current C different from other environmental documentaries and that sometimes they seem more sort of like science-like, like it's it's more of a um, academic um, you know, video or something. How do you propose doing that with Current C? How will it be a little bit different without giving away too much about the sure. film? Um, so... What drew me to Currency as a film in particular, as a, as a filmmaker, is that I thought it was a very exciting story. Um, there's a lot of inherent conflict, you know, over these resources. And even though the sort of setting and what's at stake and all that is definitely environmental um, in its nature and, and, and it has to do with protecting the environment, at the heart of it is really a human drama. And you know, there's a lot of different aspects to that drama too. There's, you know, 
poverty and, and people trying to get by, but there's also uh, politics and government and corruption. And there's also, you know, more broader themes like, you know, greed and love and kindness and all these things. And so, I mean, I just thought that was an amazing framework, you know, to address a social issue. And also, uh, this kind of came about not too long after Cartel Land was um, around, and, and it really struck me as, when I, when I saw Cartel Land, I thought, um, you know, and I, I think there are some, you know, fair criticisms of that movie, so I'm not, I'm not trying to sell it as like the best thing ever, but it really, uh, <laughs> it's a great movie. I, I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. In fact, that I, I felt inspired to make yeah. a, a sort of a similar film with a similar vibe to it. And I thought that, but I wanted to do an environmental one and I just thought this had all the pieces for that. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of what I mean. It's not by, by no means not the first environmental f film that's like a thriller. I think The Cove and Racing Extinction, which I was involved with, also have um, elements of that. Uh, although I think that those are less gritty and then, than what oceans, than what currency is gonna gonna be in the end. Um, but and then there's also uh, another filmmaker. I'm forgetting his name right now, but he did Marmato, and he just has another one that premiered at Tribeca called A River Below, and I think that he does similar kinds of things. So, um, so I don't want to claim like this is totally unique in its in its tone or vibe. However, I do think that we need to find a way to connect with people on the environment. Um, that is more than just your typical uh, science lesson about, you know, um, climate change. And, and, you know, I think you see a lot of environmental filmmakers doing this right now with, you know, Jeff Orlowski with Chasing Coral. It's like he is talking about coral bleaching, but really he's following, um, you know, these scientists and photographers who are trying to capture it visually. So the story there is really the like people. And so you really got to find that human story at the center of the environmental issue. And I thought that just this one was, you know, a very exciting one that's going to hook people. So, well, it sounds like you have four stories in a sense. So you have the um, the journalist, and then you have the environmental uh, gentleman, and then the two students. So, so do they all sort of come together in that, or or is it more focused on one of the two men? Okay. Talk about Matt. Yeah. Okay. So, so basically, um, they we met them all through connections from each other really so their stories intersect and they weave together and it, and it really I think all of their stories and, and stories of many other people there are part of the same story um, we do focus a little bit more on the journalist Matt and and then also on Paul who is on the island and starting the marine fisheries protected area um, and also and the students we met on Paul's island so they're kind of part of that story too um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I, I do think that it's, we, it's not really like four intertwining stories as it is one story where we have different uh, characters that come along in the journey and show up at different times and, and then stuff like that. So, How is that for them to, did you, did you speak to all of them beforehand and letting them know like, look, there may be parts of the film where you won't necessarily like how you're portrayed. I mean, that's always a, a, the, for any documentary that you're doing. Or, or it doesn't seem like that's come up yet. Because people are, are so, they, don't, they only want to be seen the way they see themselves. And sometimes the camera shows a better angle, a worse angle, neutral. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fine line. And how is that? Well, that's one of the things um, that's really important, like in addition to the initial email and the initial access. Um, getting, I guess, uh, creating a good relationship with the people in your film. It, you know, it all comes down to making sure that everyone feels comfortable and that they trust you. It's, it all comes down to trust. So if they know that they can trust you to make sure that their, you know, image or that whatever they're doing is going to be portrayed, um, you know, in the way that the documentary should portray it, then that's how you can really make a great film. And I think that, you know, that's a risk that they're taking, you know, by being part of any film or that any character is taking by being part of a documentary. And that's the only way to really do it. They have to trust the documentary filmmakers because if a character in a film has a lot of oversight or has like, you know, the right to like, you know, screen everything before it gets out there, it really affects 
how ethical we can be as filmmakers and as storytellers. Definitely. Right. Yeah, and I think every situation is different too. Uh, and every relationship is, is different with your subjects, just like they are with any relationship in your life. And, um, and I, and I think that you, you are faced as a filmmaker with some difficult choices in that regard. Um, I've been, when I go out to Cambodia, so the first time Stephanie and I went together, but the last two times that, that we filmed down there, it was just me because Stephanie's been working on her, uh, on the, on a Netflix series. Um, but when we, uh, or when, I, when I'm out there, I have shown, you know, I've shared with them like the trailer. We did, we cut like a sizzle trailer. I showed that to them because, you know, it's interesting. It's, uh, you know, the risk is they might not like what they see and then sh shut down and, you know, close off access. But, um, but the flip side of that is they might really like what you see and then open access and, and or at least trust you more. And um, uh, but I kind of made that choice to, to share what we had at the time just because I thought that, um, I, you know, I wanted to be transparent and, uh, and keep them excited because, you know, filmmaking is a long, particularly documentary filmmaking is a long process. And, you know, I've been out there a few times, been filming them for a year. And if they don't feel like progress is being made or, or they they start to wonder what you're doing. You know, that can also kind of erode your relationship. So it's it's always constantly a bit of a balance. And um, I don't like to hide things, but I also don't necessarily, like Stephanie said, I don't necessarily think it's also helpful to um, show people early versions of things because it's a half-formed idea, not a fully formed thought or whatever. And so it doesn't even really represent necessarily what you the end thing is going to be. And uh, I learned that on Tiny actually when we screened some work in progress screenings at film festivals we did it twice and i i regret doing that um only because you know you know people see the first thing and then in their mind it's that's what the film is always and you never really get a second chance for a first impression so um yeah i'll, I'll i guess that's just to say it's all it's complicated and i think it's case by case in the Kickstarter video, you have a image of a man fighting off another man on a boat, or there's a fight that takes place. So we see that it's a turbulent um, environment, some of the filming that you've uh, been exposed to. Are you worried about your own personal safety? I'm worried about Christopher's safety all the time when he's <laughs> out there and I'm not there. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, my mom is. I know that much. <laughs> and now Stephanie. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, it's filming in Cambodia in particular, uh, I just want to, I'll just speak for that because, uh, it's probably different in different countries, but you kind of get a pass a, a bit for being a Westerner. Um, and you have a, a certain degree of protection that locals don't have. And so a lot of journalists who are Cambodian and a lot of environmentalists who are Cambodian are either imprisoned or sometimes disappeared, or there are some prominent cases of very public killings that of course never really get solved or get tied to anybody um, so it's a lot more dangerous for them than it is for people like us going in um, however when you're out on the open oceans a lot of things can accidentally happen and actually we you know in the course of making this film learned about a local cambodian cham fisherman who was killed by a vietnamese fisherman and of course that also nobody was held responsible for that and um you know, so there is a certain amount of, of danger for sure. And particularly on these boats are really small. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's not a lot of places to run and hide. You know, you can't just run away. It's like you're, you're stuck there. So um, there was a, a few moments, which isn't in the Kickstarter video and might not even be in the film, but where we were out on patrol. Uh, that's what MCC calls it when they go looking for illegal fishermen, it's called patrol. Um, not that they necessarily go looking, but when, when they kind of come in their area, they'll kind of go out to try to, to stop them. They take the, the nets. And so when we do some of those things, they're usually at night because that's when the illegal fishermen are operating. Um, and they operate without lights. So you go out there, it's pitch black. And Stephanie, when we went out the first time, this, we had a, an encounter. Uh, so then what happens is they'll like kind of creep up on the illegal fishermen and then they turn on their lights and start shining lights on them. But then the fishermen have brighter lights that they shine back on you and they usually fish in groups. And so they'll, what they do is they drop their nets and they start encircling you and there's lots of yelling in, in Khmer, which is the uh, language of Cam in Cambodia. And you know, it's, it's actually really kind of scary. It yeah. might not come off that way on the video, but it, in the moment it's like, 
anything can happen. And one, one time when I was there, the second time we went out and we didn't have the advantage. It was like a new moon. So there was no light basically. And you could barely make out some shapes. And all of a sudden we, we realized that we were pretty much surrounded by four or five giant, actually, I think it might've been as much as seven giant Vietnamese pear trawlers. And you can hear on the radio and then, you know, they start, their lights start coming out when they see, and everybody knows who Paul is and, and what they do. So they're on the lookout for Paul and, and that's why they travel in groups because then they can kind of like um, combat them better. So anyways, at that point they kind of surrounded us and, you know, we actually kind of moved away because we were worried about getting, you know, too far away from, they, they have a, a medium sized boat, a speed boat and a big boat. And if we were too far away from reinforcements in the big boat, then it could be like an issue. So we, um, uh, but nothing ended up happening that night, but it's, there's moments where, <laughs> yeah, like when it feels in control, you know, like it's, it's not as scary, but the moment when you feel like oh, this has now gotten out of control, that's when, you know, you, your little warning bells go off. Having said that, um, nothing's happened so far. And, um, uh, I think that, you know, legally speaking, like in getting in trouble with the government, there's some risk there in terms of they could just kind of decide that they don't want to tolerate us anymore. And, and not so much, I don't think they would necessarily arrest us, but they could definitely kick us out of the country and say we can't come back and then we wouldn't be able to finish our movie. Um, so there's a little bit of a fear of that too, which is, um, you know, I, I, I think is a little unfair in a way, just not unfair, but I think that, you know, we are trying to do with our movie what's best for Cambodia, um, you know, obviously as we see it, but which is shed light on this sort of issue because a lot of these illegal fishermen are really what they're doing is besides just destroying the environment, um, which as Westerners is probably like what we're initially drawn to. But in terms of the people in the, in the country, you know, there's a lot of people who live off of the ocean in subsistence fishing who um, are having harder and harder time being able to do that because the fish are disappearing, the habitat for the fish is disappearing. They'll put their crab pots in or, or their own smaller nets that just get taken up by the big fishing boats and they lose their livelihood. And they also get into skirmishes with these larger illegal fishermen. And, and so there is um, people there who kind of need this to happen for them. Not, not, not sort of the movie, but like the work that Paul and Matt are doing. And so getting that out there to the larger audience, I think is gonna be very helpful. And you, you know, I, I would hope that the government would um, understand that that's what we're trying to do and we're not there to like make them look bad, but, but to try to like, uh, you know, sort of correct some injustices perhaps. Yeah, and... The mail's here. <laughs> Stephanie, did you have any scary encounters when you were in Cambodia? Um, well, shooting in Cambodia is always a little bit scary um, because things, just are a little bit more dangerous there in general. But on our first shoot out there, we um, were just at the island with Paul and Matt was there and it was getting late in the night and we had, Paul had been looking for, to see if there were trawlers around and there weren't any. And then all of a sudden he, he hears one coming in. He can hear the engine from like miles away. And um, we all, everyone gets their stuff together and we get on one of his boats. And then we start going out. It's the middle of the night. There's not much light out at all. And, uh, and then we go to one place and one boat is fine. They were fine. And, and then we go to another, we, they try to go to another boat and they realize it's bigger or something like that. And so then Paul stops by one of his other boats. So he has a medium boat at this time. And then there's a bigger boat that they want to take for like reinforcement. So he stops by there. And then it's just insanity. It's so total chaos, just on these like little wooden boats, just running around everywhere. And um, I jump into the the bigger boat because I think that it's going to go. They we first imagined that it was going to go with them, only to realize that I became completely separated by Christopher. I could still hear a little bit of what's going on on this like on one of our um, one of our um, mic things and um, on one of our recorders but 
I couldn't hear everything and I kept expecting my boat to meet up with them. And so I lost Christopher for several hours. I had no idea what was going on. I was totally terrified. I could only hear a little bit of static coming in and out. And then like finally when I, when like they, we find them because they were just like out in the middle of the water and my, the person on my boat couldn't find them. Finally, when we find them, they had taken, they had like, they were side by side, this other trawler filled with like illegal fishermen and Christopher's just there shooting. And like, oh we're just screaming, it was just terrifying. And, yeah, that was, yeah, that was a fun night. And, and also yeah, it, it, we had two wireless lavaliers and she had a recorder and she was recording one of them and I was recording another one attached to the camera. But the problem is, is that she had the receiver for the person that I was in the boat with and then I had the receiver for the person she was in the boat with. So our, we ended up getting out of range and then um, kind of not entirely messing up our audio, but it, it certainly didn't help anything. But it was yeah. just it was just funny because like it's things you don't anticipate like that come up all the time. And yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm just like sitting on a boat that's going nowhere for a couple hours while Christopher is out, like maybe dead. I have no idea. <laughs> maybe kidnapped. Who knows? Maybe he's in Vietnam and no one will know. And yeah. I'm just hanging out. <laughs> so during that, at this point, what are you thinking about the documentary? Or, 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 you know, or, or the trip that you've taken, is it? I'm just hoping he's getting good footage. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That makes two of us. Makes two. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. Which segues into another uh, issue, and that is when you get something that maybe needs to be ramped up a little bit. Maybe not every experience is going Sorry, to be. Can I add something yeah. to the last Sure, sure, question? yeah, go for it. I don't it, mean to interrupt. No, uh, no, no, let's. Yeah. I, one thing I'd like to point out, though, is that, you know, it's, it's easy to sit here in, in our house in LA and talk about um, oh, the, the danger we yeah. had out there. But these these people do this every day. And right. uh, you know, they're, Paul and his family who live on the island, they have to commute to the mainland. And just you know, not too long ago, uh, his family was coming back from the mainland and Paul wasn't on the boat. And they got surrounded by a, a whole fleet of electric trawlers and they were throwing things at him. And it actually hurt his wife. Um, and had they caught him, there's no telling what they could have or would have done to them. And uh, so this is like a, a, a current, like a continu continuous threat that uh, Paul deals with, but also just other fishermen mm -hmm. and other Cambodians in the area. So this is like, uh, you know, so when I was down there and, you know, you're seeing these things happen and it's like, it's like, uh, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a bit of privilege to say, I don't want to participate in this, you know? So I figured uh, it's sort of my responsibility to like make sure to film it and, um, uh, and as Matt in our film, when we are, when you, the original conflict you cited that you see a little bit of in the Kickstarter video, when we were filming that, you know, I had this, I interviewed Matt afterwards and he was basically like, you know, part of me wanted to run to the back of the boat and hide. He's like, but part of me uh, came out there to see this, so I'm going to see it. And he like, you know, and I think that sums it up pretty well. It's like, you know, if we're really going to do this. It's like we have a responsibility in a way to our subjects to actually uh, stay there and film, uh, you know, to an extent. You know, you obviously, you're not going to like com commit suicide, you know, and like jump in front of a bullet because you ever, but but you do have responsibility to wit to bear witness to these things because these people can't escape it. Mm -hmm. To document it. Yeah. Which, which leads us back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier, and that is just the truth of, of a scene and, and keeping that, you know, within the framework of the documentary and not skewing it. I mean, I figure if that was something you wanted, you'd be in reality TV and you'd be able to, you no know, script it and make it. I mean, there is some, you know, there's a three-act structure of short to documentaries, but how are you staying and creating a story but also keeping it true? That's what I mean to say. Can, um, yeah, I... You know, I think we talk a lot about the, our responsibility to our subjects, and I think that is a very solemn and heavy responsibility. But you also have a responsibility to a couple other things, you know, the, the truth um, and also your audience. And, you know, while we are filming people in Cambodia, our audience primarily is going to be Western audience. So, and so the truth then that we also have responsibility to is kind of influenced a little bit of both you know we want to um definitely you know make sure we portray our characters in a fair way in a truthful way and like you know share their truth but we also 
you know, are making a product um, for people in, in primarily North America, but also, you know, potentially Europe and, 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 and some other places. So you also kind of have to focus a bit on what's interesting to them because then otherwise your film will never get seen. And that's the sort of double-edged sword is like you're, you're still making entertainment that needs to be sold. So you have to kind of include certain elements that maybe your subject wouldn't because, um, you know, they think like, no, like this is actually more important, but maybe that thing, even though it is more important, if you just focused on that, the movie would, no one would watch the movie. So you're constantly balancing, creating an engaging, interesting project with telling the truth with what your subjects want, how they want to be portrayed and what they want to show on camera. And it's a very tricky balance. Yeah. yeah I no, I mean, that's like, that sums it up. It's true. You talked about the translation process for the film. So I'm assuming that you have translators that are there in Cambodia helping you work with some of the people you're interviewing. But also, once the film is finished, what's the translation process like? What, what, what are you dealing with with subtitles and things like that? Well, usually, yeah, when you're on the field, you have field translators. Sometimes we rely on our characters or subjects to help us translate, um, especially if we don't have that much money. And, um, and then afterwards, in order to edit the footage, really, we need to get translations done. Usually, like if you have all the money in the world, you can send it off, the audio file off to a company, and they'll translate it and transcribe it for you with time code and everything. And um, so lately we've just been relying a lot on a lot of friends in Cambodia and here who speak Cambodian and um, to help us a little bit along the way. But we do need help with translations. I mean, that's indispensable to editing. We, don't, we can't really edit unless we have the translations. And then sometimes we'll also have someone sit in with us to help us um, go through the footage and to make sure that the translations are accurate with how it's edited and everything like that. And then there's also the subtitling. So then with the transcripts in tow, then you, you, know, you, you subtitle the footage that you actually edit in usually. And um, then you run that by your interpreters or translators as well after that to make sure that it's accurate, that the, the translations and the subtitles are accurate with what's being heard. Yeah, yeah and it, the reason that in, in the Kickstarter that we asked, you know, we specifically cited paying for translations is that, you know, we do have people helping us and they're really smart people, but, you know, the ac the quality of your translations is, is crucial. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of times when you're, you know, volunteers, if you're not paying people, they're not able to work on it as much or as quickly as you need. They're also, you're also maybe not getting professionals who are really understand both languages very well, but also like, um, you know, because translation, which is a whole conversation to itself, there's a lot of the translator's own interpretation going on. And so you want it, someone who's really experienced, if you can get them to do it. And those people, you know, as they should get, you know, deserve to get paid and get paid well. So um, we have a lot more translations we haven't been able to do yet. Also, I would like to say that working in Cambodia in particular, um, as it is probably the case in other countries, but the languages are so different. You know, it's not as simple as it is in some other languages where there are, it's just a, a different word for the kind of the same thing. They, a lot of their words for, for things, particularly newer things, are a bunch of words stuck together. Like, I think they were telling me that um, a video, a videographer, or like my job would be like person who shoots picture, or it, it's like this yeah. whole long description basically. And, um, but in other ways, it's a very uh, simple language that they don't have a lot of similar terms or ideas um, in the same way, like mm -hmm. it's spelled out linguistically. And so um, it, is, it is very tricky and that's something that we, you know, want to spend some time making sure we get right. Yeah. Luckily, our two main characters uh, are English-speaking native people. One's from Australia, one's from England. So a lot of the film is in English, which, um, you know, in the documentary world, there's a lot of conversation about around, you know, filming movies in Cambodia, but but having these like Western main characters. And uh, but I think the plus side of it is, is it makes your film a little bit more accessible and a little bit more commercial to our, you know, our, probably our primary audience, which would be like North American or or, or. so there's some trade offs to that. Um, 
but, but we do have some crucial scenes that need to be translated. But the interesting thing of that is that we're gonna then probably have to go back and if we wanna show it in Cambodia, translate the English into Khmer. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, what, luckily that step will happen after we sell the movie, so. Lots of translations. Lots of translations. <laughs> How happy are you that you've approached this film from having others under your belt because you're looking at it from now a new, not, not just about the story, which I know is what has attracted you or the, the issue of, of the sea life, but also, you're, I mean, you're talking about, you know, audience engagement, things like that, that most people that the first time they make a documentary, they're not even thinking about that. So, That's, so one. Yeah, it's indispensable. I mean, you know, and we're constantly learning things along the way. I mean, in, in the, over a year, you know, Christopher and I have been working together over a year now. And, um, I mean, if you asked us back then if we would be the filmmakers that we are today, like we would have never been able to predict that. And we've learned a lot on this project alone and then on the other projects that we're doing simultaneously with this project and then so much from the past as well. It's just, it really, you know, adds, it's a snowball effect and it's it's indispensable and also just to, to keep learning and to keep growing and to keep pushing ourselves as filmmakers is, it's very important because we have to stay engaged. Definitely. I mean, you know, we talked about Tiny at the beginning of this and, and this film couldn't be more different than Tiny. And, you know, this is my first time filming overseas or, you know, doing my own project overseas. So um, that's definitely been a learning experience for me too. And I'd never been in Asia or even Cambodia before. And when we first went, it was, Stephanie's like, you know, showing me the ropes and I mean like very basic <laughs> things. Uh, like this is a tuk-tuk and this is how you uh, pick a tuk-tuk. Um, so and I'm grateful for her for that. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of first and learning that's been happening on this film too. And um, and it's been great. And But I do think, you know, having that baseline of experience without have, having done that, this was my first film. I mean, it would have been so much harder just because it's so hard to work in foreign countries. Um, and it's also, you know, really uh, in more intimidating, you know, mentally challenging to to do that because you're so far from all of your resources and your home base. You're uncomfortable a lot of times and you're out in the field and, um, you know, you're filming knife fights and it just, yeah, you just, uh, you kind of have to like have a level head and, 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 and things need to be sort of automatic and intuitive. You know, you can't be like figuring out how to use your camera in that moment, you just have to know, like, you know, exposure, you know, turn this and that, and like, and have all of the right um, things on hand that, you know, anticipating what you're gonna need, and, and all of that comes from the experience. That's a good point. The, the intuition and the anticipation, it only comes from experience. You could go to film school and you could learn how to use camera and how to edit and all this stuff, but it's only when you're actually like on the field, like, you know, shooting verite and observational with characters that you really know like this is what you should be getting and this is what's gonna be indispensable. Just a few days ago, Christopher, you had a piece published on nofilmschool.com, mm -hmm. which was 10 production saving tips for filming in remote locations. And it was excellent advice and I was just wondering if we could talk about a few of them, what sure. maybe some of which you consider the most important. Hmm. Uh, I think the most important thing hands down is uh, just the, the need to do your homework and prepare before your trip because that information that you get from that process informs all of the decisions you're gonna have to make throughout the whole production. Uh, you know, in terms of, you know, what's the climate like? What's your resources there? You know, where, where are uh, the emergency facilities? Like, what's the culture like? All of those things, you know, they inform everything from what kind of equipment you bring to, uh, you know, what kind of clothing you bring, like all that stuff, but also logistics in terms of transportation and, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it just really informs, informs it all, you know. I think another one might be uh, just the safety issues, really, you know, in terms of preparing with getting the right insurance in place, uh, just in case, you know, unforeseen circumstances and also you know what you need to bring in terms of taking care of your well-being and what information you need in, in terms of being evacuated or something like that it should something go wrong so um, yeah I think those are, are probably the two obviously big ones 
Uh, and then there's a lot of, you know, sort of follow on uh, pieces of advice just about gear and what, what to consider with that. I thought was interesting was um, you said just don't have your gear in bags that scream, hey, I'm a filmmaker right. and this is expensive gear. And maybe can you talk about some ways to kind of downplay the fact that you are wearing essentially thousands of dollars worth of gear on you? Right. Yeah. That's a good, that's a really tricky one because um, you, at times you just can't hide it, but definitely I, I opt not to take Pelican cases or, or any sort of hard case. And you know, I, for carry-ons, uh, well, I, I carry on my camera always and, and I'll just have like a soft backpack uh, camera bag. And I think that's actually just way more practical than Pelican case anyways. Um, but it also tends to look just like a big backpack, which is nice. And then for checked stuff, I, you know, just buy, opt for really large rolly luggage, you know, like you would normally just see with the traveler. And I just get one that's long enough to fit my tripod in. And I, you know, make it all fit into those basically. And we'll pack in clothes and stuff around the gear to help pad it and, and everything. And then I'll use a TSA approved lock to lock it up, um, which, you know, when you get to developing countries and I, I, I don't really know how risky this is, but I've heard stories of, you know, people who work at the airlines stealing things out of bags or not even them, just like, you know, hotels or anywhere else. It, it is a thing that can happen. And so I think having a little bit of security with the lock uh, at least, at the very least, gives you peace of mind. So, that's great advice. And also, too, when you mentioned TSA, so 2017, you know, getting through the checkpoint is probably more and more stringent than ever before. Mm -hmm. What are some tips on protecting uh, what's going through, and and what if your bag is opened up? You know, mine's been opened up, and I didn't have any gear in it. Yeah. But it, uh, you know, so there's it's always, if you, you have know. gear, it's they're always are going to open your bag. I mean, particularly, I've noticed uh, tripod bags get opened every single time. Uh, that I've experienced at any rate. And I traveled a lot with my gear over the years, um, not just for this project, but for my another film I'm working on. And also back in the tiny days, I was sort of splitting my time between New York and Colorado. And there was a while that I brought literally everything I used to make movies with me everywhere oh, no. I went, including my computer and hard drives and like to edit on. And, and uh, so I have, a, I have a fair amount of experience doing that. And um, yeah, my experience is they always check your bags. I think the only thing I've ever really run into was I've had some Allen keys and I guess the largest size of that Allen key set uh, wasn't approved to be carried on. So they took, they confiscated that one. But I think that's the, yeah, I think the tools, your carry on is the thing that you have to worry about. And, uh, you know, so having these sort of sharp objects or tools, you might as well just put those in your, in your checked luggage and then you won't risk, you know, having them confiscated. Right. And what about a look like you belong? I mean, that probably varies. And I'm not even sure if I'm paraphrasing for one of the tips that you mentioned, but, you know, fitting into the culture of the place, mm -hmm. it's kind of like if you're somewhere in Venice Beach and you're filming, you want to maybe look the part like you're going right. to the beach, not in full, you know, regalia. So, yeah, what... yeah. you know, I think, uh, I mean, it's, it's sort of impossible, particularly in Cambodia, to really feel like, to really look like you belong, but looking like you aren't fresh off the boat. You know, like that you are aware of your surroundings at all times and that you you basically want to make yourself look like not an easy target. And, I, you know, rather than being a tourist who doesn't necessarily know any better, but like, you know, if it looks like you are knowledgeable about how things work in the country and you're aware and, you know, that that's when I think people are just going to say, ah, that, that guy's just a little too difficult or that girl and, and instead go... <laughs> after the tourist not that way they should go after that. we don't want that but you no, know right. right well you can always tell even in LA and there's so many people who's a tourist and who's not by how they're kind of looking around in exactly. awe like we're animals in a zoo sort of thing but you also talked about maybe riding in in taxis and where to put your bags right definitely yeah I think uh, taking uh, it it's more expensive. Um, everything you do as a filmmaker in foreign countries is going to be more expensive because you have considerations that you uh, don't when you're just traveling which is mostly way more luggage and, and more expensive gear. So I usually end up taking single taxis, which in Cambodia is pretty uncommon and reserved for people who have a lot of money. Uh, normally they share taxis or they take tuk-tuks or they ride on the back of, of motorcycles. And, um, and I've done all of those things in Cambodia, but when I first, what I normally do is when I arrive with all of my 
gear and bags, I take a taxi to the hotel where I drop it off. And if I don't need it, then I'll, you know, tuk-tuk or, or ride a motorcycle around town. But when I'm going out on a shoot, I bring only what I need for that shoot. And um, because this is a Verite shoot, oftentimes I don't, I don't always bring my, uh, my tripod with me because I do a lot mostly handheld stuff. So in that case, I can just bring my backpack and, and get everything in there that I need uh, for the day. And a lot of my additional gear is more for interviews and things like that, you know, like lighting or, or um, cables or, you know, hard drives that I can offload to later, things like that that I don't need to shoot. Um, and then when I ride in tuk-tuks with my gear or bags, I make sure to keep them in the middle of the tuk-tuk uh, because people will ride up next to them and they'll have one person on the back of a motorcycle who will reach over and grab your bag and then ride away and your tuk-tuk's never going to catch a motorcycle. So, um, you know, you just want to kind of be aware that that's a possibility. Uh, keep your hand on your bag, you know, and just keep your eye out for suspicious motorcycles who might be trying to, to grab your bags. Well, last but not least, what about uh, making polite conversation and someone asks, hey, what are you doing here? What, what, are you, what are you up to? Do you disclose, oh, I'm a documentary filmmaker, or you just say, I'm, I'm traveling and want to try out my new camera? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think that really depends on who's asking. Little kids, you know, particularly in these uh, developing countries, you know, just like love seeing, you know, not only Westerners, but just like when you have a camera, they know about you know, TV and cameras and what that means. And so they're like, get really excited and they want to come over and see what you're doing. And I just, I love to like, uh, you know, show it to them and like, you let them like play with it sometimes if I, if I can, if I have time. Uh, if it's somebody who looks like they're in a place of authority, I, I do tend to downplay it a little bit only because you don't want to call too much attention to yourself. You never know who uh, is legitimate, who's not, who, you know, just because... I, you can't help but not know those things in a, in a country you're not familiar with. And just like you wouldn't do that here, you know, if, if you didn't know why somebody was asking you questions in a part of town you're not normally in, you would you probably, you know, you try to keep it kind of close to your chest what you're doing. But, you know, I just say like, oh, I'm filming, um, you know, actually, I, 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 I just, I don't actually say what the project is. I say what I'm filming. So someone be like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm filming this fisherman. <laughs> or whatever That's great, right? yeah uh -huh. because you're answering the question but it's you know not giving away too much at the end of the day when currency is finished and out there what type of impact do you want it to have what do you want it to do so after tiny came out it had a much bigger impact than we kind of ever imagined it would and you know i think for documentary filmmakers that's sort of the bug you catch more than the the fame and definitely not the money but uh you, the reason, you know, you want to do it is because you want to have a positive impact on the world. And I think, um, with currency, you know, it, I don't, you know, I don't think it's going to have a, a very big impact, um, in a very tangible sense in the U S or, or Western countries. Um, I think it could in Cambodia in terms of really, showing like what's going on there and sort of the corruption angle and like might put an end to uh, these rule violators kind of getting away with it and it might really help that situation um, if it's seen widely there. Um, in the States, what I hope happens is that people are more aware of these situations and sort of our role in them because uh, one of the big things that contributes to this problem is the influx of money from NGOs down there, which um, is good in some respects and is well-meaning, but some of what's missing with that is understanding what's happening on the ground. So the money is either directed, misdirected, or is funneled into some of these um, corrupt people's pockets. Uh, usually uh, the, the people, the, the NGOs are unaware it's even happening. and. Um, so I think what, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, not that I think, not that I'm hoping that, you know, NGO investment in Cambodia stops, but just that it's uh, framed around what's really happening and not what our idea of what's happening is going on down there. And I think that this film uh, can, to a lot of people who might be donors to those organizations, could expose kind of like a more honest portrayal of the 
intricacies of all the problems and, and how it, the gray area, because, you know, going into this project, I always thought, oh, corruption is always bad. You know, like it's, it, and, and my vision, vision of it is with these people who are sitting back and like, ex, you know, getting, obviously violating laws and getting money um, and enriching themselves and, uh, and, and fight, you know, meanwhile, all these other people are, are suffering. But really in Cambodia, corruption sometimes just looks like an informal economy. And realizing that it's really a gray, uh, a whole like spectrum of, of, of grayness, you know, some of it is black and white, but a lot of it is like, well, that, I mean, is that really wrong? Like, you know, there's a lot of policemen who, um, who would be considered corrupt in the U.S., which is, you know, who are like stopping people for not wearing helmets on their motorcycles, asking for a $5 fine, and then, you know, just putting it in their pocket. But what we don't realize is that those policemen are hired a lot of times, don't make very much money, but they're kind of told that this is how you augment your salary. And the question is like, you know, we would say, oh, well, that's still wrong. But really at the end of the day, the only difference between the way we do it here is here, they take that money, they gave it to the government who gives it back to them in a paycheck. Whereas there, they just get it and it's their paycheck, but it's still enforcing the law, right? So. You know, so the, once you start kind of seeing how some of that stuff works, it's a little bit harder to fully be uh, um, angry. And I'm, you know, the more I'm, I'm like uh, less convinced of my own certainty about right and wrong in some respects. You know, but in uh, but then there is very clear cases of corruption that is wrong there, and those are the ones that we really are targeting with our film. And I think that they can. Um, uh, can change. Uh, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it doesn't do any NGO, any, or any people here who want to do good in other countries, any good to not have a full understanding of the complexity of the situation. Um, because it's, it's so easy for us to oversimplify it by using our own Western lens and, and, and values and projecting that rather than trying to understand what their, um, their lens and their values and, and the, the complicated nature of the issues that they're dealing with.